Our scripture passage this morning is from Nahum 1, verses 1 through 8. We have three passages. This is the first of the three. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The, bl the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Our second passage is Nahum 3, verses 1 through 4. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And of all the countless whorings of the prostitutes, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms? And our final passage is Nahum 3, verses 18 through 19. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For unto whom has not come your unceasing evil. You know, a common question asked is um, common question asked of those inquiring of Christianity is often, well, why does God allow such evil in this world? Uh, a related question would be, why is there such injustice in this world, and why doesn't God do anything about the injustice and the evil of this world you know will it ever be made right for those who are oppressed will they ever get their day will they ever get their due these are questions that are natural to us they're intuitive to us we we want answers to them well Nahum uh, the book itself tries to answer some of these it, it, it brings forth to us a picture of God who is sovereign and just and righteous in all of his ways. He's great in power. He, he will not leave the guilty unpunished in any way. And, and yet there's a softer strain to the voice that Nahum gives, which is that there's a kindness and a compassion to God. Uh, there's a place of refuge with him. Uh, they're held together in this book. Uh, much like you know, this idea of approaching God with a reverent affection. You, you know, we approach God with a, a reverence. He is not to be trifled with. 
And, and yet there is an affection to him that, that draws us to himself. I think this is what we're going to see. A deeper devotion is what I hope you will draw from this very heavy, heavy book. You know, we're, we're going to be speaking about Romans in time. I know some of you have asked, when are we going to get back and finish the series on Romans? And we'll do that in about 12 weeks, and it'll take us through the end of the year. We're going to have a short series on the minor prophets. Uh, the second half, we're concluding what we started last year. We'll do a short series in the Psalms, how they lead us to worship God, and then we'll be back into Romans. But we're starting with these minor prophets. Um, they're minor, of course, not because they're lesser in importance, but they're just smaller in size. Uh, th these minor prophets, they really have the same message as the rest of the Bible. It, they have a different author, a different place, a different time. It still preaches the, the, that sin is odious to God, but his grace is sufficient for our sin. Uh, these prophets are, are good to study because they, they really reveal things to us about God that we, that we often don't know. Sometimes I, as I read through Nahum, I, I thought, I don't know that I know God like I think I know. You, know you, you read certain texts of Scripture and you're reminded, this is a God that I need to re-familiarize myself with. And this is why we're, we're using this. Th these minor prophets, if you will, they were like preachers. You know, th they were bringing a word of God to the people, confronting sin, but offering grace. In fact, these 12, uh, these 12 are, are much like the 12 apostles. The apostles preached about the nature of, of God's grace in a world of sin and to repent and believe. It's what I'm doing actually right now. It's the same thing. It, it just has continued on that God has people speak about his glory and his mercy and drawing them. Now, the reason we are studying the Minor Prophets in part is because we don't know their message. We don't know how to pronounce half their names. And yet they have a message that's relevant and helpful today. I know that they're filled with harsh language. They are. You heard some of it in chapter 3. There's a harshness to it. In fact, one author said that the minor prophets are like the dark continent of the Old Testament. They're, they're, they're deep. What do we do with this kind of language? Well, we're going to try to unpack it and see how God's grace <clears throat> is fully present in the midst of God's wrath. And that's what we find in Nahum. Look with me in verse 1 because he begins this way. He says, an oracle concerning Nineveh the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Who is Nahum? We don't know for sure. His name means comfort, comfort, which is a bit ironic given the nature of the text, that his name is comfort. Uh, but we don't know much about him or Elkosh, where he was. We believe <clears throat> that he was a minister, that he was a prophet to the southern kingdoms. Remember how Israel was one nation, after the reign of Solomon, it broke off into two. The ten tribes were in the north. They were called the northern kingdom. Two tribes in the south, they were the southern kingdom. He was ministering probably to the southern kingdom. And he probably wrote it around 650 B.C. Now, why do I say that? Well, because there's two time markers in the text. One is in chapter 3, verse 8, where Assyria, this nation, remember, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So Nineveh would be like Raleigh to North Carolina. Nineveh is the capital. Assyria is the nation, the empire. And 
in chapter 3, verse 8, Assyria had destroyed a city, Thebes, in Egypt. And that happened in 664 B.C. And we know the destruction of Nineveh came at 612 B.C. So it had to be between those. If you take the prophetic nature of this book seriously, it would have had to happen between those two. Now, you notice he says it's an oracle, or it can be translated, it's a burden. God is declaring judgment on Nineveh. Nineveh, probably the world's first superpower. And he's declaring judgment on it. Now, you've heard of Nineveh before, right? Last year we studied Jonah. Uh, Jonah was the prophet from the northern kingdom who went to Nineveh to call them to repentance because they were such a wicked nation. And if you remember, he went kind of in a circuitous route through a fish and everything. But he got there and he preached the gospel to them and they repented. But the repentance did not last long. Maybe 30 to 50 years they went back to their idolatrous ways. They ended up destroying the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And so we have Nahum here. So Nahum is like a sequel to Jonah. So you have Jonah who went and preached about the mercy of God. Now you have Nahum who is not offering forgiveness. He's issuing condemnation. He's declaring, you will now be judged. They're like bookends. They're really a picture of God. There is the mercy of God not to be presumed upon and there is the judgment of God and they're shown together to be declared by two different prophets at two different times to the same people. So when you look at this book, I trust if you have not read it, I would encourage you to. Uh, you'll see this book really fall into two sections. Uh, two sections, the bulk of the book is about the judgment of God and we'll talk about that. What does it mean that God will bring judgment to the world? Uh, but there's also the comfort of God or the hope of God. And that's a softer tone that you have to listen for in this book. So first we'll speak about the judgment of God. And you see that declaration in verse 1. But I want you to notice right in 2 to 8, in verses 2 to 8, Melanie read those verses. He's speaking about the character of God because the judgment of God flows out of the character of God. And, and he has this hymn of praise over the nature of God. Look at it with me in verse 2. In verse 2 he says, The Lord is a jealous God, an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. And he keeps his wrath for his enemies. Listen, Nahum is painting God as a divine warrior king who is going to come and he's going to exact justice on the people that have lived against him and have committed great atrocities and violence. God's going to bring that judgment. There's no uncertainty about it. It will be swift. It will be judicial. It will be fair. But it will be complete. But there's more to God than just this wrathful, venging God. You see it in verse 3 when he says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will be no means, by no means clear the guilty. He's drawing this language from Exodus 34. If you remember the scene, Moses wanted to see God, and so God revealed himself. This is God's self-declaration of who he is, that he's slow to anger. He's a kind God. He doesn't just bring judgment in the immediacy of the sin. He's a kind God. But his kindness is not such that the guilty will just be able to go on forever. They, he will not leave them unpunished. And God's power 
will bring about his judgment. So make no mistake, there's, a, there's kind of a, a thought of God being kind of a dualistic universe, that God and evil are fighting each other. There's no threat to God's power. You see this in verse 3. He rebukes the sea. He makes it dry. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and rocks are broken to pieces by him. It says, but the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness, even into death. So you have this scene here where he's showing us who the character of God is. <clears throat> do, you understand, do you understand God this way? I, how do you understand God? I mean, when you think of God, we're all theologians here in the sense that we all have thoughts of God. What are your thoughts of God? Are they comprehensive? Do they define God as merciful and wrathful? A lot of us think that God is a God of love. That's what we'll generally hear. Well, God is love, and he is love. But you see, when you look at God with only a partial view, you will have a wrong view of God. God is love, and that's true. But I say to the person that wants to just hold God as love, what do we do with the evil of the world? How, what do we do with the injustice of the world? Does God just overlook it? What do we do with that? There are other people that just want to focus on the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the justice of God. And it makes him far away and unapproachable. And yet, how do we draw near to this God? We, we need to have a comprehensive understanding of God. And many people want to think that the God of the Old Testament, I get scared of him, but I like Jesus in the New Testament, as if they're at odds with one another. There is no difference between the two. I want to remind you that in the ministry of Christ, you have great mercy. He meets with the leper. He, he takes care of the prostitute. He loves the child. He ministers to the tax collector. He is a God of mercy. But make no mistake about it. He issues woes to the shepherds of Israel in chapter 23 of Matthew. He says, woe to you shepherds. He's, you know what a woe is? A woe is a curse. He's cursing them, just like chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, Nahum says. I mean, Jesus also says in Matthew 10, he says, if anyone will not receive you when he sends his disciples out to preach the gospel, he says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, it's a lot of people that fall into that category. He says, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly, I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than on that town. That's the words of Jesus. You see in Jesus a perfect representation of God. You see mercy and yet you see wrath against sin. And of course, if you're a Christian here, you know these are perfectly mingled at the cross of Christ, where you see the absolute mercy of God that sinners can come by faith and be forgiven of all their sins, and yet you see the wrath of God poured on the Son as he bears our sins and our curse. You, you see the mercy and the wrath of God together in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what makes us Christians. What makes us Christians is we trust that in Jesus alone we're reconciled to the Father because justice has been paid and yet mercy has been distributed. And it is ours by the free gift of God's grace. So this is a picture that, of God that Nahum wants us to have. And, and he sets us with this before he goes into the details. 
of this judgment that he's going to bring. He declares judgment. It's an oracle. It's a burden. He's bringing it. Now, now he leaves chapter 1 after describing the character of God, and he moves right into chapter 2, and he begins to describe the judgment that God will bring on Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And you see, Nahum is like a, a watchman on the wall. And it's like a scene he's painting here. And he's beginning to talk as if he were stirring up the city that, hey, there's an advancing army and we're going to be attacked. And so look with me in chapter 2. He says this, the scatterer, or that is the army's coming, has come up against you. Nineveh, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. In verse 3, he says, the chariots race madly through the streets. You can just imagine the scene as this city is trying to make ready for war. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. That is, the enemy is advancing upon them. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. The mistress is stripped. Desolation, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Nahum is describing, this is what's going to befall you, Nineveh. This is what you're going to face. And then as you work through that text to the end of chapter 2, he says, all of a sudden God speaks, behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That is to be terrifying. The, the creator of the universe, I'm against you. And I will burn your chariots, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Now this is Nahum's prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh. Now within 40 years of this prophecy, the Babylonians and the Medo-Persian armies attacked and sacked Nineveh. It was remarkable. It was, it was at a time where the empire of Assyria was weakening a little, but that there was this unique flood that came among the Tigris River, which bordered the city. Remember now, Nineveh is right near modern-day Mosul of Iraq, and the Tigris swelled. It compromised the walls, and they entered the city, and they pillaged the city. The records report that the king of Nineveh, the king of Assyria, took all of his women and all of his servants and they put them all in the palace and burned the place to the ground as the Babylonians destroyed the city. They destroyed the city. The ruins could not be found for years. Nineveh, the ruins of Nineveh were not found until 1854. 2,500 years, that was a dust bowl. When God brings destruction, it's destroyed. The archaeologists couldn't even find artifacts. So thoroughly was it plundered. He describes this judgment that will fall on that city. But then in chapter 3, he moves to the details of why judgment is brought. Nahum is explaining to a sinful people, the people of Judah, why. This is why the judgment of God has fallen. And he speaks in chapter 3 about the arrogance of Nineveh. Nineveh was so proud. Listen, their city was indestructible, they thought. They had 100-foot walls. 100-foot walls. That'd be like walking up to some huge building in New York. 100-foot walls. 
They were so thick that they could drive three chariots across them next to each other. The walls were miles long. They had siege towers above the walls. It was an incredible fortress. They were arrogant. See, Nineveh, Assyria, under the reign of Sennacherib, mocked God at the walls of Jerusalem. God's not to be mocked. They mocked him. They were proud. They were arrogant. Not just arrogant, they were violent. Look in 3.1 where he says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. When you look at Assyrians, particularly in the reliefs that you find in museums, like the British Museum has some reliefs from Assyria, they redefined violence. They made our modern-day terrorists seem modest in comparison. And why do I say that? Well, when they would conquer a city, they would cut off the hands and feet of the men. They would, they would gouge out the eyes and they would cut off the tongue. They would lop off their heads and put them in piles at the city gate. They would leave men impaled on spears. They would fillet people alive, pulling back their skin. They created terror unlike any power before them. They were a violent people, and God said, enough. But they also were given to harlotry, not just sexual deviation, not just idolatry. When they would conquer a town, they would take all the inhabitants of that people group and they'd spread them out all over their, their kingdom. They did this so that they couldn't regather and revolt. But they practiced almost what was a geopolitical harlotry. And so God brings judgment to them for these, this violence, this arrogance, this harlotry, this lack of humility before God. And so look at 18 and 19, because in these last words, he gives these words himself to the king. He says, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. You know what they're doing? They're celebrating. They're partying. Evil has been destroyed. You know, when we were, Carol and I were preparing to go overseas, Back in 89, uh, the Berlin Wall, of course, had just fallen, and uh, everything was coming unglued with the Iron Curtain. And I'll never forget it, because it was probably a month before we were flying over there. On Christmas Day of 89, uh, Nikolai Ceausescu, who was the ruler, he was, a, he was a wicked dictator of Romania. For 25 years, he, he gripped that place with an iron fist. Uh, things were happening all across the communist world, and I saw him on TV. They put the husband and wife. They put Nikolai and his wife right against the wall of the palace. Boom, boom, dropped like bricks. Done. And the people, was going, people were crazy. In Romania, in the cities, they were celebrating. They were happy. Why? Evil had been put down. Evil had been crushed. When you think of God's judgment, do you struggle with it? I mean, most of us do. Most of us struggle with the judgment of God. We don't like to hear this judgment. And, and particularly in our culture now, my, you can't judge, right? I mean, isn't that the line from Christians and non-Christians? You can't judge me. You can't judge me. You give any suggestions, you disagree, you maybe introduce a, a contrary, contrarian idea to it, you can't judge me. I, I mean, on a humorous note, so Carol and I just joined a gym. Not that I need it, but we did join a gym. It was cheap, and we got two deals together. 
but I loved it. When we walked in, it's right around the house, and it says judgment-free zone in massive letters across the back. Judgment-free zone. And I'm thinking, what does judgment-free zone mean? And, and so I'm walking through there. The lady's showing us through, and every piece of equipment, judgment-free zone, judgment-free zone. And I'm thinking, what is it like to prevent somebody from coming up to me and saying, hey, big boy, you might want to run a little faster maybe or back away from the table once? I, what's that mean? But we, we don't want judgment. We don't want it. And particularly with God, we don't want it. I mean, it seems beneath of them. I mean, it seems we, we feel awkward if we go out there and we speak about the judgment of God. We, we feel like, no, I don't I hate to talk about this, but you know, we've got this little part of God. He does judge. And I just, I, I want to warm you up to him, and the gospel's so sweet, but there is this judgment piece that we've got to talk about. That's the way we are with it. But, but I think it's because we don't understand. We think of the judgment of God like our own explosions with anger when they seem uncontrolled, maybe even unwarranted. The judgment of God is not arbitrary. It's not cruel. It's judicial. It's important to know this. The judgment of God is not arbitrary, it's judicial. In other words, it's in accordance with truth and fairness. God's judgment is always in proportion to the sin. God's judgment is always balanced as to what it's bringing judgment against. It isn't this haphazard, capricious, out of control, blowing of his top. J.I. Packer, modern-day theologian writes, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. I mean, if you struggle with the judgment of God, put yourself as a Christian in Soviet Russia in 1950. What would you do? Would you appreciate the government and the way that they were crushing you at every level of your relationship in life? Don't we need the judgment of God? Without the judgment of God, how is justice rendered to the oppressed? I think we will see that the judgment of God is actually a necessity, not something to be embarrassed over. But secondly, the judgment or the wrath of God is not hateful, it's loving. We often think that God is this moral monster for bringing about wrath and judgment. And we think of him as kind of just a, a wicked God. And yet, is wrath not part of love? Is wrath not part or an expression of love? One author said it this way. He says, his judgment is an inevitable expression of his goodness on behalf of the victim of evil. God's wrath is love in action against wickedness. In other words, I mean, can you consider the mother or the father who is fully aware and, and, and fully able to stop the abuse that their child is suffering under, and they do nothing? What would you say of a parent like that? Would you not say that they're hateful? That they're indifferent to the injustice going on with their child? I mean, no parent would put up with that. I mean, they would, a mother would rip your eyes out to protect her children. You, you, you want injustice stopped. So, so judgment is an expression of the holiness and the goodness of God's character against his own creation. 
And then I would say this, that the judgment of God is not to be ignored, it's to be feared. Listen, God's judgment may be delayed. It's not denied. We'd like it immediately, right? Like I share with you a month or so back about that man, years back in Baltimore, he went in, the collection plate was going through the church, he robs the church of all their money, he runs out the door, takes all their money, boom, dies of a heart attack, money's all over the place. God's judgment happened immediately. We giggle and think, hey, that's the way I want to see it done, until we sin. And, and until we begin to sin, and then we don't want that. We want a little, we, want, we like the slow to anger stuff then. But, but don't, don't think for a minute, it's uncertain. Judgment began when Adam and Eve were moved out of the garden. Judgment fell when people sinned against God in the flood. Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, Uzzah, the sons of Aaron, Korah, Achan, and on and on we go. God's judgment is a certain reality that we need to really dial into the reality of our lives. How do you think about judgment? Do you consider it? I mean, look at Assyria for a minute. Their time finally ran out. They were invincible, no doubt. At least they thought, and they weren't. How do you think about it? I mean, do you consider the nature of judgment in your life? Do you look, with, do you look at judgment with ambivalence? Do you see it as a reality? I mean, if you're not concerned, I'm saying that you are risking much. Please don't hear me as simply the words of some preacher who's speaking fanatical language, it, the history shows it. Judgment falls upon nation upon nation. And if not, it will come to us in our own death, just as man is destined to die once, and after that we face judgment. I mean, judgment awaits all. Uh, this is something, particularly here if you're a Christian and you struggle with the judgment of God, you've even struggled with with the whole exclusivity of Jesus, you need to consider these things. Life presses upon you, whether you want it or not. Now, if you're here and you're concerned about this judgment, as you, as I should be, we should be concerned, there is this word of hope. <clears throat> I want to take you to this word of hope now. There's the word of judgment. He declares it, he describes it, and he details it for us. But now we move to this word of hope. But you have to, in your, I know in your mind you're thinking, we could use some hope right now? And like, where is the hope, Tom? Well, well, the hope is interesting in the book of Nahum. There are very few verses that speak directly to the hope. There are a couple, but they're very few. But here's where the hope comes. The hope is in a different tone. The hope is, is this, that Nahum as a prophet is actually not speaking to Assyria. He's speaking to the people of God who are sinners themselves. And he's speaking to them about the judgment of their enemy. So the hope is coming in the promise that God will destroy the enemy that just seeks to destroy us. In other words, the hope is that he's going to crush Nineveh. He's going to crush the kingdom of Assyria because he's good. Our hope rests in a God who will take care of that which is threatening us. You see the good character of God in chapter uh, 1, verse 7, when it says, The Lord is good that he is a stronghold. He knows those who seek refuge in him. It, it, that word know is a covenantal word. It's like a man knowing his wife. There's a unique relationship there. It's not just knowledge of, but it's commitment to. Those who seek refuge in God will, will find hope, but not just 
individually. Look at verse 15, because here he draws from Isaiah 52, and in chapter 1, verse 15, he says these words, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What, what Nahum is saying is Nineveh will never pass through you again. Nineveh will never crush you. The Assyrian armies will never crush you again. You will have peace. You will worship God. Now what, what Nahum is doing, and I want you to understand this because you won't pick it up easily. In the first chapter, except in the first verse, he doesn't mention Nineveh or Assyria. That picks up in chapter 2 onward. So what most scholars are saying is that Nahum is speaking about how God deals not just with Nineveh, Assyria, but the whole world. In other words, we're taking a step back and we're getting a wider view of how God is going to deal with all people in all nations. And, and, and he's saying that the people of God will have peace. You can worship God. You can rest with the peace he brings you. Whatever time period you're in is what he's saying. So, the, so there's three words of comfort I want to draw uh, your mind to. Number one, Nahum offers you comfort that God will bring about justice to the nation. L listen, Nineveh of Assyria was only one superpower that was judged by God. So is Babylon. We'll talk about that next week with Habakkuk. Babylon crushed Assyria. Babylon was crushed. The Persians, the Persians were crushed by the Greeks. The Greeks were crushed by the Romans. And on and on we go with kingdoms, even to our own day. The U.S., China, Russia, whatever kingdom. All nations will stand before God. All nations will be accountable to God. I mean, you don't need to worry about that. Do you, you, please don't think I'm crazy here. When, when Nahum was preaching, I'm sure they thought he was crazy. Nineveh would, was at its zenith of power. And 50 years, boom, there are no walls left. So, so, so please... Be fully aware God will bring justice to all the nations, all the nations as he sees fit. This allows us, knowing that, we don't have to worry. We don't have to strike back. We don't have to respond in fear. We can pray for those who persecute us. We can feed the hungry who even have brought harm to us. We can give drink to the thirsty. Paul says clearly in Romans 12, he says, do not overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. We can rest because he will care for us. We don't need to worry. Will justice be satisfied? Yes, it will. Do we need to take it up in our own hands? No, we don't. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting part of Matthew when Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, turn the other cheek. Uh, what he's saying is don't take up personal vengeance on your own terms. He's not saying that we don't need governments, we don't need uh, to bring about you know, justice to you know, criminals and the like, but personally, we can rest with God. Secondly, the second word of comfort is that Jesus Christ will end all violence. And I want to explain why I say Jesus. You don't see Jesus in the text here by name. Uh, in fact, Nahum isn't even quoted in the New Testament. So why do I say Jesus here? Well, remember now, Nahum is speaking about the character of God. He's saying God's a divine warrior. Well, in the New Testament, of course, this is 
prefiguring Jesus as the divine warrior, where Jesus is going to be the one that crushes all the nations. In fact, Jesus doesn't just crush the nations in his own death and resurrection. He actually will crush all the darkness of the nations. You know, there's a different battlefield that Jesus fights on. It isn't simply the nations that have flesh and blood, but it's against the powers and the principalities and the spiritual forces of wickedness in dark places. You see this clearly in, in Colossians 2. He says, God made him alive together, or made alive together with him. He's forgiven our trespasses. He's canceled the record of death that stood against us. He has set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, listen, not all things are subject to Christ. We, at this point, we see in the book of Hebrews, but they will be. So when you go to the book of Revelation, you see the consummation of Jesus putting down all violence, all darkness. He says, in the armies of heaven, you see this warrior language like Nahum, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, Jesus, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's drawing on Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and on his robe and on his thigh he has written the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is where Jesus Christ will finally make an end of all violence. That is our future. That all violence. Won't you just love that day? when there'll be no more paper with the stuff on the headlines to read, it'll all be made right, justice will be brought, violence will be crushed. And then the third word of, of comfort that Nahum brings to the Christian is that there is hope for us. Because it's easy to look back in history and see the Assyrians were wicked people. And, and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans. You can always look at others and find their nature of their sin. But we're sinners. Every one of us has rebelled against God. Perhaps some in more blatant, obvious ways. Others in more very righteous ways. We all stand before the same God who has a just bar that none of us can measure up to. So what do we do? We all are yet living before this judgment bar, either in death or his return. What do we do? What hope do we have? Well, you know, he offers this stronghold that we can run to in the day of trouble. If, if you understand, if, if you've looked at yourself and you have sized up yourself as not needing any saving work other than just trying a little bit harder. May I gently say that, that you are only fooling yourself, that, that no one stands at the bar of their own justice. No one determines their own standard of righteousness. It is by God and his perfection. And that all of us need to understand and this takes the Spirit of God to open our eyes to it. All of us need to understand that we will face the same God of justice and we need a stronghold. We need a refuge to run to. And of course, that refuge is Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the, it is God's Son. All the minor prophets were straining forward for this messianic hope. God has to send a Messiah to deliver us. He has to send a refuge. He has to send a stronghold that we can run to and be safe. And this is what Jesus Christ is. 
He, he's the stronghold. How is he a stronghold? Well, if you think about the life of Jesus Christ, he lived without ever crossing God in any way. He lived a perfect life. God could legitimately say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He did everything right. So he has a righteousness that is acceptable to God. At the same time, Jesus laid down his life for us so that he bore the just punishment of God for our sins. And so Jesus is our substitute. He stood in the place of God's wrath, what we should have borne, he bore for us. This is what we're called to believe as Christians, that his righteousness puts me in good stead with God, that his death brings forgiveness to my life. So Jesus is often referred to, in Hebrews at least, as a mercy seat. You know, the mercy seat was over the ark. It's like we're huddled underneath the mercy seat, and as the fire of God's justice comes down on it, we feel no heat. Jesus bears the heat for us to save us. That's the refuge that we run to. That's what Nahum is calling for. There has to be a Messiah to come to deliver us from this righteous God of judgment. And what faith in this Messiah is, is we trust ourselves to him. We look at God as a just judge who should be able to find us guilty immediately. And yet we will be spared because of the sacrifice that Christ has borne for us. So when you look at the book of Nahum, you're going to see this picture of the judgment of God in absolute crystal clarity, frighteningly so. And yet you hear that, that soft strain of hope and peace that comes from God that is brought to us through his Messiah, Jesus. So I, I would ask you to give consideration to this. Uh, the justice of God tethered to the mercy of God. That's the God that we worship. Let it lead you to a deep, reverent affection. Now, one final thing before I finish. You notice that this book ends with a question. It, it has a question. There's no other minor prophet with a question except Jonah. Jonah was left with a question as well. And it could be that the author, Nahum, wanted us to think about Jonah. And to think about Jonah because they presumed upon the graciousness of God. Nineveh presumed upon God. They just thought, well, I'm in good shape. We've repented once and we're fine. There is no persevering of faith. That's a warning to the Christian. We don't presume upon God's mercy. We thank him for it. And every day we remind ourselves of it so that we're grateful and our affections swell. But we don't presume upon it. Because when you look at Jonah and Nahum, he's a God of mercy, but he's a God of wrath as well. Let's take a minute now and just consider these things of God. It might be a time of repentance for you, even confession of sin or asking God to bring forgiveness to your life or thanking him for all that he has done for us. And then I'll pray for us.